We want to warn you, this story includes disturbing details about boarding schools that may be triggering for some. We encourage you to find resources through the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition in the U.S. and the National Indian Residential School Crisis Hotline in Canada. My name is Alex Whiteplow. My grandpa's went to boarding school. My mom went to boarding school. I went to boarding school. I'm a third generation. My name is Daniel Nelson, and I was a boarder at Red Cloud at Holy Rosary. This is my dad, Fifi. Mom put us at the rosary because she couldn't afford to keep us. We had no choice. She had no choice. My name is Brian Brewer. Born here, raised here on a reservation. I went to Holy Rosary in elementary. Went to Pine Ridge High School. Some good positive memories, but I think those good memories are overshadowed by the negative things that happened to us. Two weeks ago, I was talking to Francine Redwillow. She her and I were in the same grade, and we were laughing, and I said, hey, did we have fun? She said, we did. We really had a lot of fun at Holy Rosary Mission. What about all these stories about how awful it was? She said, yeah, it probably was for some. The United States of America is one giant crime scene. This is American Genocide. On Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, the community is being divided by its unsettled history. A school named Holy Rosary was founded by Jesuits as part of the Cultural Genocide Campaign. Secretary of Interior Deb Holland laid it out like this. For more than a century, tens of thousands of indigenous children were taken from their communities and forced into boarding schools run by the U.S. government and religious institutions. Many children never made it back to their homes. The federal policies that attempted to wipe out Native identity, language, and culture continue to manifest in the pain tribal communities face today, including cycles of violence and abuse, disappearance of indigenous people, premature deaths, poverty and loss of wealth, mental health disorders, and substance abuse. The former Catholic boarding school is now a high-performing high school. The school has since changed its name to Red Cloud in an attempt to rebrand. But for a large segment of the reservation, they will always see it as a pernicious invader. The Red Cloud School has been deemed the most progressive in addressing the findings in the report. They have established a Truth and Healing Commission led by Lakota faculty. The commission has set up sophisticated radar tests and invited the media in an effort to be transparent. They're looking for mass graves like the ones in Canada. Shocking discoveries of several hundred unmarked graves at former boarding schools for indigenous children in Western Canada. But this is deeper than graves. I'm Crystal Echohawk, citizen of the Pawnee Nation, Kickahockey Band. I'm the founder and executive director of Illuminative. Illuminative is a national racial and social justice organization whose mission is to build power for native peoples by amplifying the voices, stories, and issues and representation of Native peoples across American society. Over time, this atrocity has become more layered and complex, but one thing is for sure. This is about inherited trauma. <sighs> Sorry, I was just thinking about my grandfather a lot today. <sighs> you know, my motivation for this is my grandfather, who was a survivor of the Pawnee Industrial Boarding School. And 
I grew up with the horror stories of what happened to him there and how it affected him and my family. And, you know, growing up and, and later working for my own tribe and actually the tribal offices of our, our nation, Pawnee Nation, are in the former Pawnee Industrial Boarding School. And every day I walked into that building, it was constantly being surrounded by the stories of abuse and the stories about how the language was beaten out of our children, my grandfather, and generations after. And I think that I've seen, just on a very personal, up-close level, what those schools did. What I'm looking at is I look at how this is unfolding. Out at Pine Ridge is like, wow, I wonder how can this maybe have lessons for my own community? And I want there to be accountability at the highest levels, whether that's the U.S. government or the Catholic Church and everyone involved. And with that accountability, there needs to be justice finally served to our people. And then I think the final thing that comes within that is finally healing and healing for our people. It's so important, and I think it's just realizing that as we found out that for in some instances, it was like some of the first times that people were talking about the abuse they suffered. How many years and decades and generations have just kept this to themselves? It's been this just quiet, bleeding wound. If we want something to change, we gotta do something about it, because it's not gonna change on its own. And if we don't push, and if we don't push to shine a light on this story, it's gonna get swept under the rug again. I mean, this is like remarkable what our people had to go through, what these little kids, these families had to endure. And you hear these other people, you're like, it's really amazing. They cannot kill us. We are still here. We are resilient. When we first really envisioned pursuing this story, I knew right away the one person that we really needed to work on this was my assistant director of comms, Lachey Wesley. Citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, former journalist and recovering television news reporter. Lachey, this could be related to other crimes in that area. Well, to what you are hearing right now, our flash. Several people told us that their cars were actually broken into. In Lachey and I linked up, hopped on a plane, and headed for beautiful Pine Ridge, South Dakota. The morning we set out, what was that like for you? Because that was your first time in South Dakota and, and definitely Pine Ridge. It really is just such a special place. As soon as you arrive, you instantly feel reminded of how small you are in the world. There's rolling hills and a vast sky you can see for miles in the distance. You know, crossing into the landscape and seeing, you know, the vastness of it, seeing these little trailers dotted out, you know, all over the rolling hills and the horses and the res dogs and res cats. Every time I go back, it's really powerful. Every time I cross onto the border and I first see the Badlands, I'm struck by just how beautiful it is. I mean, it's just like iconic, amazing scenery and also just a mix of emotions because there's a complicated history there and a lot of a lot of pain. I got to Red Cloud Indian School in the morning right as the school day starts. The school looks like others I've seen in small towns, except it has a large new Catholic church built right into the center of it. Behind it sits the historic brick school, and up the hill is a cemetery where they say Red Cloud himself was laid to rest. This is a busy day. It's the last day of the school year. Teachers are walking by. We pass a Jesuit priest and nuns. I see the landscapers getting ready to mow the lawn in preparation for tomorrow's ground-penetrating radar survey. Inside, we walk down these long, narrow halls that twist and turn through this hundred-year-old school 
until we finally reach the cafeteria. There are many young students happily eating their breakfast, boys with long hair, girls wearing ribbon skirts. Then it's time for the morning prayer, and a nun walks up to each student with burning sage. And all those who are just here, listening and being respectful and praying for each other. So we pray Thanksgiving for this wonderful year and for a wonderful summer and in Thanksgiving for your families also and for all those who today could not be here. And then they do a Lakota prayer. I have never seen a nun with sage. There's no better representative of kind of that clash than that nun walking around. Outside, we meet up with Marcus Fastwolf. He's a former student, football player. He is now working at the school, working on the communications and social media team. He's going to be the person who gives us the tour and a history of the school. Did you go to school here, Marcus? Um, yeah, so I went to high school here. I graduated in 2012. It's changed a lot since then. <laughs> You can tell that Marcus is guarded. He's careful about what he says because he doesn't exactly know why we're there. You can go check out the cemetery. That's cool with that. I've been to many reservations. I've never seen a cemetery near a school. I think it's a lot of things. I mean, I do think it's just part of the proximity of the Catholic Church and these schools. I think it also really goes to show, when you look at the time period, which these all came up in the 1800s, the conditions in these schools where these kids are crammed in on top of one another. I think one of the most pervasive killers of kids at that time was tuberculosis, and it's because they just stacked them in there. And you really see that there was just like, obviously an intensity of health disparities, but you have to say that didn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> so are you guys gonna be here for the ground penetrating radar demonstration? Yeah, we'll be here tomorrow. We will be working in that. Yeah. Is that why they're mowing it to kind of get it ready? The school tells us that the reason that they're searching that area is because that's where they're doing new construction and says that everywhere that they're doing new construction, they want to make sure that they survey that area. I'm a little bit more cynical about why it was chosen, for sure. A lot of the people that we talked to said that this was for show, that they were just choosing this location because it was an easy location. You know, I really began to wonder, and I... You know, I hate to say this, but I was like, I wonder if they really are going to do anything beyond that initial search of the front. In order to get more insight, we sought out the highest ranking employees who are Lakota, the same ones who are leading the GPR effort. I'm curious what they think the country should know about what's going on with Catholic boarding schools for Native children. How should America think about the boarding schools? I mean, that's a big question. That's Tashina banks Rama, Executive Vice President of Red Cloud Indian School. My story is long and complicated, so I'll be really general. Where should I start? Tashina's story is long and complicated. Her father is the Native civil rights leader, Dennis Banks, a longtime leader of the American Indian movement. He was a key player in the occupation of Alcatraz and Wounded Knee. As a child, Tashina lived life on the run because a warrant was out for her father. She returned to the res with multiple degrees. She isn't Catholic. It's surprising she works here. So what brought her to Red Cloud? What brought me to Red Cloud? I am a mother and my daughter, there was a real need for her to connect to 
her identity and who she is as a Lakota. She needed like classmates that looked like her. She needed an environment like of people that were no longer blonde haired, blue eyed, got dropped off in fancy cars. And suddenly she's looking at young women who pray like her, you know, who tie tobacco ties and Sundance with their families or go to Inipi, you know, on Wednesday nights. And when I brought her back here, August of 2009, I applied for a job here and I got it. It was like almost a 50% cut in pay from what I was doing before, but it was really important for me to be close to her and she thrived. She thrived here. So that's what brought me back. Hey, Lachey. Hey, Crystal. You were in the room with her, right? And just really listening to, to Sheena's interview, I have some thoughts and some things that are surprising, but I'm just wondering, as you sat there and held space with her, what surprised you? What surprised me was all the work that Tashina says that she's doing behind the scenes with the Catholic Church, with the Jesuits, with the board that oversees the Catholic school, and talking about things and pushing things to bring accountability. And I think a lot of people might already come in with some bias or a point of view thinking any native that works up in Red Cloud is sort of like a traitor or sort of a sellout, right? I mean, I think there's like a certain sort of vantage point. We've, we've kind of heard from community too. There's some really intense feelings about certain people, particularly in leadership. And Tashina's name's come up. Why Red Cloud? Because there's beautiful transformation happening here. They're not teaching theology the way they used to. They're teaching spiritual classes, Lakota culture, like Lakota language. Our young immersion group sings honor songs, you know. How does it work here where it's a Catholic institution, but it's teaching Lakota language? I will not say that it works well all the time, because it doesn't. I mean, Lakota is about a way of life and its teachings. And then over here, you have like a religion that is very rooted in certain beliefs. We spoke to somebody and they said, Catholicism and Lakota ways can never be in harmony. Well, I'm not Catholic, so I can't speak to that side of it, but I think there's, it's possible always to be respectful. The idea that the two religions might not be blending despite the nuns walking around with sage in the language classes was not unique to Tashina. We had just heard something similar from our tour guide, Marcus. I myself am not Catholic, so I can't be entirely sure that happens. Before we left Tashina, I had to ask what the reaction was when all the uproar started. In a lot of ways, this has always been known to Native peoples, but now it's an international news story. The first part of me wanted to like run, you know, like how can I be associated with boarding schools? This is not okay. But then at the same time, when I look around, I'm like, I love my teachers. I love my kids are happy with where they are. So I got to fight for any young ancestors who might have been buried and we don't know about it. Well, then I'm going to do everything I can to like help find them. If I'm going to advocate for truth and healing work, and if that means ground penetrating radar, and that is uncomfortable for everybody, that's what it is. And that's, that is how it was. We need to get to it quicker than white man's comfort. I can't speak for how the Jesuits felt when all of that was going on, but I know it was disturbing to them too. Tashina makes more sense to me after hearing that interview and really understanding that I think she truly, truly believes that she's doing everything that she can. 
I mean, her dad, Dennis Banks, was one of the most famous American Indian movement leaders. And to kind of just hear her kind of situating herself and her own lineage and I think her own activism, like clearly she she believes in the mission of the school and the things are happening there. So I just, I, I thought it was a really, really powerful and surprising conversation. The thing that I took away the most with that conversation with Tashina is everybody ultimately wants the same thing. They want the best for these children. We needed to speak to a Catholic Lakota to get a better perspective of the fault line between the sides. Whenever we asked who is the best to speak to, one name comes up again and again. Our search was leading us to the man who commissioned the ground-penetrating radar survey. It was a name we'd heard a lot about already, Macaw Black Elk. Macaw was born for this role that he's in right now, and I'm so grateful because he does it really well. He found the archaeology team. We at Red Cloud were not even having those conversations around GPR until last summer. My name is Makah Black Elk. I am the executive director for Truth and Healing here at Red Cloud Indian School in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. When my friend gave us the tip about Red Cloud Indian School, you know, the way he described Makah was one that he was Lakota and he was heading this initiative and that he felt like there was a sense that Makah was really in a really tough position, trying to navigate both not only being Lakota, but being Catholic and deeply Catholic and also spearheading the initiative and that there just seemed to be more to the story, you know, and he urged me not to judge either way. There was a lot to unpack. Makad seems like personable. He also seems very polished to me too. When I stop to think about the work I'm doing now and even just my own personal connection to this history, I think about my own time as a student here my parents' time as a student here, my grandparents' times as students here, my grandparents were here when it was a boarding school, and my great-grandparents were here uh, before that. It is both a feeling of a certain kind of pride, then I also think about the painful parts of that legacy. I mean, I grew up hearing stories, both good and bad stories, from my grandfather, who was here in the 1950s. I think when you listen to Macaw's story and especially his story about his grandparents and his parents attending the school, I think you can feel for him and understand that he is a descendant of somebody who probably had some very painful experiences at Red Cloud Indian School. And when you hear that story, you think this is really the person that you want to be doing this truth and healing work, that they might do it in the right way. I think Macaw is deeply conflicted. How can you not be? And I think it's an incredibly complicated position to be in. I think so many Native peoples have that conflict. I remember thinking after so many people we interviewed and they were maybe the second or third or fourth generation to go through that school. And and you're kind of like, as we're listening to the testimonies of some of the really severe abuse, it's like, how can you, how did you still send your kids? Like, or how did your, you know, like, how did your grandma still send your mom and your mom still send you? And I think that's the kind of thing that I just realized that this is such a complicated story, right? The, you know, these generational families and the legacy there at the school. And it's really deeply contradictory. It's kind of hard to understand, but then I think I just sit there and like, I don't want to, you don't want to judge, right? And just trying to really understand, you know, Macaw's in a very difficult position. 
But at the end of the day, the Catholic Church is his employer, and Red Cloud is his employer. And I think anybody without trying, I'm not trying to disparage him at all, would just wonder in terms of that context, how do you keep your balance? It's really interesting. How did you arrive into this like position of leading this Truth and Healing initiative? Back in 2019, we got our first non-Jesuit president of the institution. He's not from here and he's not native, but he came in. I was director of curriculum at the time in the schools. I think he quickly learned what all of us here, especially who are from here, already knew, that there's deep tension around our history as a boarding school, around our identity still as a Catholic school, and that there's just really tense feelings about that. So Lachey, what are some of the tense feelings you've heard about? There was a protest at the school, a list of demands were made. Those demands included land back, reparations, Jesuits to leave. I think a lot of the tense feelings that I've heard from youth and community is that the advisory committee, the process that the school is going through is not very genuine, that they haven't been invited to participate. Uh, they weren't told when meetings were. And they kind of pushed us to the side and not let us know about things like the meetings. Yeah, and definitely. the only reason why they're having these meetings is because we started this. We're the ones that brought the community in. Then when we hear from Tashina, Makah, and others, they say that they were. So I think it's very interesting. The stories are not aligning from, from the different sides. I think there's also tensions in the community where they don't feel like Red Cloud Indian School is being very transparent and honest about this investigation and exactly what they plan to do. I think another part of the tense feelings we heard a lot about from some of the elders um, and some folks in the community is that they are interviewing elders but they seem to be only handpicking elders that have positive experiences. I think that's another part. So there's there's a lot of questions about the integrity of it, but I think on the, on the Red Cloud side, again, they feel like they're being transparent, they're being completely sincere, and they, I think, are increasingly getting very defensive, at least, or very upset about the way that these, these youth in particular are coming at them. And I think the youth is really realizing what kind of impact these boarding schools have had on their families, on themselves. You asked about, well, what are the political tensions? It's just gonna ratchet the temperature up more and more. As people really begin to digest what is in this report, I think that that national political pressure is gonna have, it's, it's gonna impact what's happening on Pine Ridge. And I think it's probably gonna put the pressure even more so on Red Cloud. If Pine Ridge spins out of control, then Macaw's GPR initiative might be the spark. I think just because he wasn't a Jesuit, he said we need to look into um, truth and reconciliation. And so he asked myself and one of the Jesuits to form a committee of people from across our system to spend a year learning about truth and reconciliation. That year passed, and at the end, sort of our recommendation was this this should be given full attention and, and given someone to dedicate their time to this in a complete way. And so they put together a position to lead this Office of Truth and Healing, and I stepped into it. How do you reconcile? And how do you do that with a community that you said there's- First, we don't want to jump ahead to talk about healing prematurely. I mean, that's obviously and ultimately a goal or the goal 
but it starts with the truth. And so that's really what's been our focus is we just need to hear the stories of orders, get those collected, make sure that there's some way we can get those stories heard and tell the story of what's in, in those records, regardless of what they say. Makah suggested that step one was to collect the stories, and we agree. Lachey and I have been speaking to a variety of people all the way from their 20s to their 70s here at Pine Ridge. We spoke to dozens of men and women to help build a really full picture of just what happened. There are plenty of living witnesses to these horror stories, but there are also stories of life-saving transformations happening at the school like was the case with Tashina's daughter. Day one, she loved it. This story echoes our tour guide, Marcus Fasswolf. Yeah, it's a good school. I, I enjoyed my time here. Although this was a sentiment of current students, our talks with the former students and their descendants told a much different story, especially the further back in generations you go. The more we spoke to people and saw the positive and negative sides, the more we need clarity on what we're even chasing. It's clear there is a dark past here, but how dark? Is the Catholic school still actively doing harm? What does cultural genocide even look like? Was this a concentration camp or just a very tough and misguided school? Themes and imagery began to repeat themselves in the stories we heard. I mean, I grew up hearing both good and bad stories from my grandfather, who was here in the 1950s. That's Macaw Black Elk in an aside from our interview. I remember him talking about getting in trouble, though, at times, too. He would tell a story. And again, he would always tell it in this funny way where he would laugh. Um, but he would talk about, I forget exactly what he had done, but the punishment was for him to get smacked in the behind with one of those like things that you sharpen a razor with, those like leather straps from one of the priests. And, and, it, and it was funny to him, I remember he was saying, because, uh, or at least he was looking back at it and laughing um, just because of the silliness. We were beaten regularly, razor straps. And that's Brian Brewer, who you just met a few minutes ago, speaking about his time as a student. We were punished at night. I remember this prefect, he'd walk through up and down the halls. Pretty soon he'd say, I hear something, everybody up. And he didn't hear anything because we were all laying there not trying to make it because we knew what was coming. You know, a lot of the boys were burned on radiators, hot radiators. I never got burned. I was lucky. I had friends that were burned. But what did it for me is when I was an eighth grader, it was in April. About a little over a month of school left. I don't know. We always got fights. There was a priest that run a little store down in the playroom and sold candy, things like that. And uh, he was one of the disciplinarians, and one night we got in a fight, and come got both of us, took us both in this little store, pulled out a baseball bat, beat us, both of us, the baseball bat. It was still a month of school, so I said, I'm gonna run away. So one of my cousins said, I'll go with you. The other boy that was beating me was too afraid. Because if, when you get caught, you're really punished. They shave off your hair, and they really punish you. So he wouldn't take that chance. He thought we might get caught. They had uh, chasers, they called them. So when they came out, we started running. We ran all the way to Pine Ridge. The stories of abuse didn't come in a trickle. It was a fire hose. Everyone had an opinion on what should be done, and everyone has a relative who survived it even Tashina and her iconic father, Dennis Banks. For my dad, because boarding school had militarized him, he shared stories and his stories were 
horrific as all of the stories that you have heard and you can imagine. Kids being pitted against each other and shaming each other, older kids abusing younger kids, and all of this done under this framework of boarding schools and policies, you know, to really just strip away every part of their identity. He talked about that very, like it was very a normal part of our um, conversations, right? So I knew very much about what boarding school history was for him and boarding school experience. But the more we spent time around the reservation talking to folks of all generations, the more we started to pick up on something unexpected from the younger generation. That's not our way. Like, don't pick up that Bible. That's just not our way at all. We're Lakota. We're the Buffalo Nation. We pray with the Buffalo. A new pride movement that grew out of the Standing Rock Pipeline protests had the younger generation demanding answers. They're not afraid of confrontation, they've been staging protests, and they're keenly aware of the ground penetrating radar. They have plans to make their presence known in a big way. One group, the Ogallala Lakota chapter of the International Indigenous Youth Council, has everyone on edge. The members of the Youth Council are tough. They're in their early 20s, they show up in hoodies and camo pants, and they pile out of a roughed-up car like they're members of a garage band. Although they look young enough to be in high school, they come in with purpose. Nationwide, people are pissed off. Like, they want to fucking take action immediately. And sorry is not good enough. Like, we made that very clear. So I just think people are waiting to take action in a farm. We're hoping maybe, you know, we can have a nationwide action one day because a lot of our IYC chapters are based around, like, major cities. So we're hoping maybe everybody could put their anger to use, (laughs) do something. Oh, we we just needed a reason to step up to these churches and it's here. According to them, they've already had a tense face-to-face with Tashina. Is Maka and um, Tashina. Tashina. Tashina Bint. Yeah. We told them straight up that we're not their allies and that we're not friends and that we're not there to benefit them, that we're here for our children and that's what we're there for. We're not, you know, we're straightforward with it. Like, you know, we're not fucking around. You know, we're here to get shit done. We need to start using our voice against these missionaries. They utilize a lot of our land. They exploit our children for profit every single summer. There's a lot of missionaries on our reservation. And so we started studying the missionaries and then um, thought the first place we should definitely go is to Red Cloud Indian School. That's Eleanor. She's fashionable and edgy. She designs her own streetwear and slaps her protest slogans on there. She's a passionate community organizer and a young mom. And it's clear she's been through some things. And because, you know, a lot of us had elders who went to Holy Rosary. It only seemed right to create a list of demands. (laughs) Our conversation with the school now felt like a fraction of the story. But we promise to keep it fair. We have an obligation to these children, and the issue extends far beyond Pine Ridge. Stick with us. We have several hours of recorded interviews, and I can tell you, you cannot predict where this is going or the incredible stories you will hear. The question now becomes, how do you heal a wound that is still bleeding? On the next episode of American Genocide... 
The investigation into the community in the days leading up to the ground-penetrating radar event continues to take deep emotional turns. We're digging out spirits of people who never had the ceremony to release their spirit. I was dreading it, dreading it. Crystal and Lachey are invited to a secret meeting of the Youth Council where they're planning their next bold move against Red Cloud School. These priests... They're not stupid. They're not going to bury anybody right on the campus. And they learn of a second potential burial site in the school's basement where folks report contact with spirits. Marsha Small said that she went into the basement and she said that she called upon her ancestors before she went down there. And she does that so that they could notify her if they feel something in that room. She said she couldn't be in there that long because the energy was really negative. And so she said there's definitely something in there. The producer of this podcast would like to thank and acknowledge the following. Evolutionaries, supported by CAA and Pop Culture Collaborative. San Manuel Band of Mission Indians. Serdna Foundation. Open Society Foundation. Novo Foundation. MacArthur Foundation. Christensen Fund. Pivotal Ventures. And JPB Foundation.